Zara, the English Channel, they are us. If you stand on the beach at Calais on a sunny day, the white cliffs of Dover look startlingly close. They shine like a beacon across the waves, white and pure. The distance from here to there is 21 miles, but it feels much closer when the sun is out. And it's so easy to think that if you got in a boat now, however small, and just paddled and paddled, you could make it over the channel easily. You could get there. And on a wall of one of the buildings by the beach, there's a Banksy mural that shows a small girl with a suitcase looking through a telescope across the sea from here in France to England on the other side. But on her shoulder is a vulture, a symbol of death waiting for her to try because it's so deceptive, it's so beautiful and so deadly. I happened to be there with a French fisherman who said a gale was starting out in the middle of La Manche, invisible to us even though the day was lovely. The sea looked calm enough, but when I asked if he would take me across in his fishing boat that morning, he laughed and said, no, that would be suicide. Well, this is the story of someone who made that crossing. In a far smaller boat, not even a boat, but a tiny rubber dinghy, overloaded with people, barely afloat, letting in water in the middle of winter, arriving as the dawn came on Christmas Day. Her name's Zara. Well, that's the name she said I could use. It means brilliant or shining bright in Farsi, her first language, she says. Everyone else in this first series of Can We Talk can easily be described as an icon. And in a way, that's true of Zara too. Not on her own, but collectively with the men and women and boys and girls who've risked their lives to cross the channel in small boats, sometimes tiny boats, over the last few years. Icons of all that's wrong with the world, according to some people. Demonised by politicians who stand on the shore and shout. Characterised as an invading army, which is ridiculous when you actually meet some of them. I'm in a porter cabin in Folkestone where the English summer is thunderous and rain-soaked and Covid stalks us all, but there's shelter and warmth and good food and a welcome courtesy of a woman called Bridget, who runs a project to help those who've come across the water, who are too old to be taken into care as children, too young to be regarded as adults. They get a foster family, if they're lucky, then a place in a flat with maybe half a dozen others they don't know. Adrift. Some of them unable to cook or clean or manage British money for themselves or negotiate life in this new land, so... Bridget and her volunteers help them. And here's Zara, looking like any other teenager, with her trainers and black jeans, hoodie and nose ring, long black hair extensions and painted nails. But her story is astonishing. I know, you think you've heard it before. I thought I had too, but I was wrong. There's far more to it than I realised, and it resonates deep inside for reasons that are very old. I've just been to see the movie 1917, set in the trenches of the First World War, but based on an ancient kind of story. 
the epic quest in which the hero or heroine has to leave their home and strike out for safety or something that will save their community. They cross the threshold into another world, feel themselves lost like Jonah in the belly of the whale, and then go on a journey, overcoming huge obstacles, negotiating confusing situations, striking alliances, fleeing dangerous strangers, resisting tricksters, defeating monsters, finding new strength they didn't know they had, confronting their greatest fears, risking their life again and again to travel far, facing a moment when everything seems lost, all is despair, and still they rise. Overcome, survive, thrive, maybe one day return home, or find a new hope. And I say that because Star Wars is based on this. Moby Dick and Jane Eyre too, and so many other stories going all the way back to the beginnings of human history and belief and storytelling. It's deep inside us. And as I sit listening to Zara with the memory of that movie, 1917, in my mind, I realise that what she's telling me is more extraordinary, more epic and more like an ancient folktale than anything I saw on screen. And this is real. This is her life. There was once a girl who fled her home in wartime, with her father and mother and her family never looking back, knowing it was dangerous to do so because her dad had worked for those who'd lost power. Only as a postman, but still, that was enough for a death sentence for all of them. Life was a struggle in the new land, where they weren't really welcome, but love persists in the least promising places, like flowers blooming in the desert. So... As the girl who'd fled with her family became a young woman, the world being what it is, she met a boy who was becoming a young man. He was good with his hands. He worked the soil and knew how to make things grow. So he found work as a gardener, nurturing life there in the city. They married, and life grew inside the woman too. Boys and girls. One of them called Zara. She grew up in exile among a million other people from Afghanistan who'd been forced to live in Iran, perhaps two million, maybe more, all of them cut off from home and less than welcome where they were. Zara was born and grew up in Tehran and tells me, life was very difficult for us. We were not allowed to go to school. We were not allowed to go to work. You just had to live as an illegal person. All the Afghan people, refugees. I didn't study because I could not go to school like an Iranian child. She watched planes make trails across the bright blue sky and wondered what it would be like to fly. Up there, above it all, free to move, to swoop and soar and go where you wished to go. Down there on the ground, she listened to very old stories told by her mother at bedtime as her head was stroked. But they were tales of a place she'd never been, to which her mother said they could never return. The tug of home and the dream of flight 
couldn't take her there. But neither could she stay forever. Zara's father died when she was just 13, leaving her mother alone with the children. Then the situation became even worse, she tells me. They were deporting Afghan people to Afghanistan. They said, you have to go back. My mum said, we can't go there. She was afraid they would kill us all. Zara and her mother set off to try and make it somewhere else, a faraway land, a place of promise, where they could be in peace, maybe even belong at last. At the time, that place was called Germany. Angela Merkel had opened the borders, made a dramatic response to the refugee crisis, saying, yes, come here if you're troubled. And in every story, there are allies and helpers who come alongside the hero or heroine, but they're not always straight and they're not always good. Sometimes their status is complicated, like the agent they paid to get to the border with Turkey before crossing the long way. We walked over the mountains, she says, as if it was nothing. Those agents are lurking all along the way, now hustling for money on the coast of Turkey, offering to help Zara and her mother get across the first great physical barrier they face after the mountains, the Aegean Sea, the wine-dark sea of Homer's Odyssey the water upon which Jason and the Argonauts sailed, and above which Icarus flew before the sun melted his wings. The name comes from the Homeric verb to jump, perhaps because an ancient king is said to have jumped from cliffs along these shores. For Zara, this moment was a leap of faith, the leaving behind of everything that's familiar. This was 2016, the year after the world was shocked, when the body of a two-year-old boy washed up on the shoreline, Alan Kurdi, from Syria. His mother and his brother also drowned. Hundreds of others died trying to make the same crossing too. When Zara found herself there, such a long way from anything she might have called home, the safe passage they paid for was not what they were given. An eyewitness in the camps along the coast said at the time, you can hear the screams of people being forced onto these boats, often using tremendous violence. The smugglers are armed, they have cattle prods, they put the people on the boat and then they tell one of the refugees to steer the boat, often in complete darkness. Many boats end up in trouble all the time. Zara and her mother crossed on a dinghy meant for a dozen people. It was carrying three dozen, maybe more. Zara was terrified, soaked through, cold and exhausted. But they made it to the other side, to the island of Lesbos, where the woman and the girl found themselves in a camp among many displaced people, all of them now completely detached from the life they'd known. Zara and her mother spent a year in the camp, which was ferociously hot in summer and freezing cold in winter, and even in the spring when the blossoms came, it was dangerous. Zara was young. The men of the camp circled her like wolves. They wanted to take her, possess her. Zara's mother was terrified of that. She turned it over in her mind many times, thinking, what can I do to help my daughter escape? Zara knew, she tells me, 
It was not a safe place for a young lady, she says flatly and formally with the language and the accent of somebody who's known a little English all her life but is only just now learning how it all fits together. She was 15 then, looking for a way out, but as the sun grew hot again, Germany all but closed its doors. The promised land now had locked gates with a sign saying no entry. That was a kick in the gut, she says. The end of a dream. Zara and her mother were now lost, suspended between the old life and the new one that was now impossible, like millions of people in camps around the world, swallowed up completely in the belly of the beast, like Jonah in the belly of the whale. Their fingerprints were taken and they were warned against leaving. They said if you go to another European country, they will send you back. There were, however, rumours of another way. Another place, an exception to the rule, no longer part of Europe, no longer bound to those restrictions where it was said you could apply for asylum without being turned away. Britain, England, they will help you there. So Zara's mum got together the best money she could, contacting her extended family who were scattered across continents, and gave it to Zara to strike out on her own. She held her tight, her face buried in Zara's neck, and cried and said, Be brave, my darling, be brave, be safe. And the agents step into the story again. A plane to Austria was possible, one of them said. From there she could take the bus to France, to Paris, to the big terminals. Zara was dizzy from the sight of the city, the sounds and the smells and the chaos. But she found people outside the station who looked like her and spoke like her and who told her there was a place she could go to for food and a shower and rest, if only for a day or two. Then you had to move on. Nobody was friendly. Some of the men were hostile. Some were scary. Some came close in the night. She sat with her eyes open until the light grew again. From Paris, Zara took the train to Calais, where she now knew there were others like her trying to do the same thing, to make it to that promised land. And it's an old story. You'd do the same if you needed to flee, if you needed to find a place where you could be safe, where they spoke a language you understood, where you could begin again. You'd risk everything for that chance, surely. Zara found herself in the jungle, a notorious camp where hundreds were waiting. She had no contacts. She had no help. I was a woman. I was alone. And here they are again, the watchers and the waiters, the helpers of this story, the strangers, the agents, who've been there every step of the way from Tehran to Turkey to Lesbos to Paris, and now here on the shoreline, hanging around like the wolf in Red Riding Hood, flashing their teeth, offering smooth words, making big promises, ready to swallow up all her money and anything else they can get. Oh, Grandma, what a big boat you have. All the better to drown you in, my love. The cheapest, quickest way to get across was on a lorry. So Zara and a couple of boys she'd never met before were taken down to the lorry park after dark and shown how to run alongside these massive vehicles as they slid past, huge and imposing like beasts in the night. 
Zara did it. She somehow managed to summon up the courage to jump, cling to the back and climb up to join the boys inside. But the driver hit the brakes and there were screaming sounds and a hissing like snakes. And the lorry stopped and he was shouting at them, get off, get off, get off. And he looked like he was going to hit them. So they jumped and ran. She was buzzing with the excitement of it, but also cold and angry and scared and desperate enough to try again the next night. This time, Zara and the boys managed to stay on. They managed to stay hidden. But one of them said, no, something's wrong, something's wrong. He was looking at his phone, watching the location on his app. The signal was bouncing up to a satellite high in space and back down again, telling him the lorry was heading the wrong way, not to the ferries, not to England, but inland. Now the two boys were banging and banging on the wall of the lorry until the driver heard them, and when he opened the door to see what was going on, they leapt out and ran. The next day, Zara felt empty. She thought of the white cliffs shining, looking close enough to touch, but it was 21 miles across this last great expanse of sea, and she was afraid to go back on the water after the last time. This was further. It was colder, the weather was worse, it was much scarier. But there didn't seem to be any other way. Enter an agent, cooing in her ear. It's okay. Lots of people are doing it. You'll be safe. The last of her money went to this man full of promises. You have food and drink, everything you need on board. He came in the night with a minibus and took Zara and some others out of the camp, an hour along the wide French coastal roads, then a few moments on tight lanes. Here it is, here we are. A remote beach where nobody would see them go or try to stop them. They all walked towards the waves, but the agent went back for something and the others followed. And Zara was left alone on the beach in the dark with the wind picking up and the stars bright across the wide canopy of the night sky falling down into her face. She could smell the sea, taste the salt on her lips again, hear the voice of her mum telling her, be brave, my darling, be brave. She wanted her mum so much. Zara was shaking with the cold or the fear. The figures came back out of the shadows, and they had with them no boat, but a big square box. And so it was that the agent unfolded and inflated the craft on which their lives would depend right there on the beach. He fitted a tiny motor and showed one of the boys how to work it, and he pointed to the red lights across the water, the signal lights of Dover. And this was just a boy, he was telling. This was just a child, maybe 16 years old. Same age as Zara. But the agent said, You're in charge now. Follow the lights. She didn't know it was the busiest shipping lane in Europe. She didn't know there were speedboats and yachts and fishing boats darting around like predators, or that there were giant monsters out there, freighter leviathans, moving through the waters, stopping for nobody, ready to swallow anything or anyone that got in their way. She didn't know any of that. A boy was shouting at the agent, Why did you lie to me? Why did you lie? And Zara's face was wet with rain or stinging salt water or tears. She didn't know. I don't want to go, 
she said. I can't do this. And here it is, the low point of the story, the point of no return. After all those miles, all those risks, all those dangers, do this, get there, or die trying. The big, bad wolf of a smuggler turned to her, eyes burning bright in the night. You're not getting your money back. So Zara had nothing left. She had nowhere to go. She had no choice. The little rubber boat, overloaded with people, was swaying in the surf, already unsteady, already unsafe. She got in. to know what it was like out there, so I crossed by ferry and found myself another fisherman on the other side. The storm had passed, so we set off from Dover at dusk, with the wind beginning to howl and the temperature dropping fast. I was dressed properly in the kind of thermals and wet weather gear refugees seldom have, but I was soon freezing. Six miles out from the English shore, on the edge of the shipping lanes, the engines were turned off, and we drifted. I knew I was safe on this modern fishing boat, but the inky blackness of the sea suddenly felt overwhelming, and I had just a hint of how terrifying it might be to be stuck out here at night in an overloaded rubber dinghy with the water sloshing over the sides into the craft, weighing you down, the waves threatening to overcome. Low in the water with no proper lights or signals, you'd be in serious danger of getting run down by one of the many vessels. Those freighters looked vast, like skyscrapers floating on their sides. And they were heading fast towards us, completely blind to little rubber boats. Five red lights in a vertical line dominated the darkness, and I took them to be the lights the driver of Zara's boat had been told to aim for. You can see that all the way over on the other side, but it's so dangerous what they're doing, said the fisherman. I'm really surprised people haven't died. That was true then, as far as we knew. But it's not true now. A doctoral student from Iran in her thirties, called Mitra Merad, a young woman full of promise, burning bright with desire to be of use in the world, jumped over the side of a sinking dinghy and into the water to try to catch a rescue rope to try to save a baby from drowning. Nine days later, her body washed up among the pillars of a wind farm off the coast of Holland, one hundred miles away. I thought of her as we drifted, and of a boy called Akoi, who was a friend of Zara, who'd made the same journey and been out here in the night on a dinghy that was sinking. I was scooping out the water like this with a bucket for hours, he told me, making a hand motion to show what he did and the shifting of the waves. His eyes were wet with tears and the memory of fear. 
The others texted their families to say goodbye. I would have texted my brother, but I didn't have my phone. We were all saying the prayer we say as Muslims when we're going to die. They survived, thankfully. But we don't know how many others have perished. Hang on, we've got company, said the fisherman as we drifted in silence, having spotted the symbol for a border force cutter on his radar. They must think we're people smugglers. The grey that camouflages these large patrol boats during the day must act like a stealth paint at night, because all I could see was a black shape, a vast moving shadow, and a couple of lights shining at us. And this is how the crossing ends. For the lucky one. Zara's boat didn't sink. They made it across the last great expanse of water on her 7,000-mile journey in the early hours of Christmas morning. The beginning of a day when some of us remember the story of another refugee woman who gave birth in exile. Zara was sick from the swell, but they reached the beach where the tide was out. She jumped over the side and onto the sand, unsure what to do, with the dawn just beginning to break around her. One of the boys tried to ring the British police to let them know what was happening, and he was asked, where are you? He could see strange arches and the statue of a mermaid in the half-light, but he had no way to put a name to this. Then suddenly a stranger was marching towards them on the beach, an older man shouting and taking control. Come with me, come with me! We were very cold and very wet, says Zara, who was still frightened. The police in France had beaten up her friends. They'd torn down people's shelters and kicked over their stoves. She was terrified of those officers in their dark uniforms, who were so full of hatred, who treated them like animals and had made it impossible to think of staying in France. So Zara braced herself when the officials arrived. She was ready for the worst. But the police here, it turned out, were nice. They had gentle, careful voices, she tells me. One of them was a woman who said, we'll take care of you. She took them to a building where they were given new clothes instead of their wet ones, and Zara felt dry, and they were given hot drinks and food, and Zara began to feel strong again, and instead of the battle she'd been expecting, she found a welcome she was barely ready for it. This was a great surprise. Zara was eventually placed with a good foster family because she was still a child. My mum was very worried. She didn't know where I was. The family gave me a phone so I was able to call her. I asked her, is your mum still alive? Yeah. Is she in Greece? No, she's in England. What? When did she come? Last year. How did she get here? Zara giggles. She came in a boat like me. She didn't tell me. She didn't want to make me worried. Then one day her mother rang and said, out of the blue, I'm in England. She lives in London, but struggles with her nerves. Everything makes her very nervous. She came all this way on her own. Yeah, she's a hero of me. 
a hero of mine, a heroine. I said Zara was an icon, or people like her anyway. Icons usually point us to something bigger, better, a higher path, or a better way of being ourselves, and they're also often made in our own image. A Russian image of Jesus looks like a Russian. An Ethiopian Mary has the face of a woman from Addis Ababa. They are other, but they are also us. And that's what I've learned from meeting Zara and Akoi and others. If we perceive them as being us, not as alien or other, we tell their lives very differently, like stories not just of suffering or of imposition, but of adventure and survival and bravery. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do now. Zara wants me to tell the story for her while she prepares to tell it herself. She laughs when I ask her to take away the baklava that someone at the project has made and is passing round because it's too delicious and I'm going to eat it all. And she smiles so widely when she shares some news. I was given my refugee status a few days ago. Do you know what that means? For the first time in her entire life, at the age of 19, this young, smart, determined woman who has come so far and overcome so much is somewhere legally. She was born in exile, but right now has the right to be somewhere. In the great archetypal stories, the hero or the heroine sometimes returns home. But sometimes they can't. And sometimes they discover that home is possible wherever they are in this new place where they live now. Zara lives by the sea, learning English, hoping to be useful. She's studying hard and has a dream to fly. And not just metaphorically or in story terms. She wants to be a pilot. And there's a twist to this tale because Bridget, the remarkable woman who runs the project where I've come to meet Zara, went on holiday one summer to a Greek island. It was almost the reverse of the journey Zara made. But Bridget was a traveller with a wage, a passport and freedom of movement. And that made it easy. Or it would have done if the flights had not been messed up somehow. So she got in a fight with the travel company on social media. And the managing director happened to see what she did and got in touch directly to say, is there anything we can do to help? And Bridget seized the moment. We've got a young refugee here who wants to fly. So the managing director actually paid for a flying lesson for Zara and others did the same. They're looking for an apprentice degree that she can take in time to work in the aviation industry and maybe one day get her wings. And on a clear summer's morning, a Piper Archer plane took off from Lyd Airfield in Kent with a flying instructor at the helm and Zara by her side. They turned left and flew along the coast towards Folkestone when the instructor said calmly to Zara over the intercom, you have the controls. And the girl who had scrambled ashore on Christmas morning, soaked through and sick to the stomach, 
confused about where she was and what would happen next, with no sense of control, returned to that same place, but now saw it from far above, flying over the beach, looking down from out of the blue sky with a totally different perspective. The view was so good, she said. Just what I'd always dreamed of. And now she tells me not everyone believes in her. The boys laugh and say, that will never happen. Girls can't be pilots. And what does she say to them? I say, just watch me fly. Thank you for listening. This story was based on conversations I had with young people at a project in Folkestone run by Kent Refugee Action Network, which is led by the wonderful Bridget Chapman. So thank you to them for speaking to me and to her for organising it. And if you've been moved or touched by any of it, do please support their work or find a group near you that works in a similar way with refugees. While we're doing thanks, I want to say a big one to Andy Lyon at Hodder Faith for commissioning these stories and to all the team there for your great support. Thank you to Emily Jeffrey for producing them and holding my hand through the process and being a great friend. Thanks to Andy Partington for working his sound magic and making them sound so good. And most of all, I want to say thank you to you for your time and attention and for letting me talk in your ears for a bit. If you wrote a kind word or told a friend about all this or posted a review or shared your own stories, then that is so appreciated. And if you're thinking, oh, actually, I'd quite like to do that. Is it too late? It most certainly is not. You can get in touch with me, Cole Morton, on social media or via the website, which is hodderfaith.com. Let's talk. <laughs>